Good morning again. We're going to be in Acts chapter 5, verse 17, and hopefully we're going to get through the, the whole chapter. That's the goal, at least. Um, again, as you know, and we're in Acts, the church on earth, and I think it's awesome. Um, you know, I'm getting stuff out of this time through Acts that I haven't gotten before that has just, uh, just really been a blessing to see the actual church on earth, what the church actually looks like, and, um, you know, just the power of, of God really in their lives. And today, I think, is no different. Uh, the title of today's message is called His Witnesses. And we'll see that these guys really are God's witnesses. And that there's a difference between calling yourself a Christian and truly being a witness of Jesus Christ. And I don't mean a Jehovah's Witness, if you're thinking. But um, last time we saw a conspiracy, we saw Ananias and Sapphira. They I maybe wanted to keep up with the Joneses. Who knows? Maybe... We looked at a lot of different things, maybe their motives, but uh, they lied to the Holy Spirit and they were an example. And probably an example that none of us want to be is one that drops dead when bringing your gift to the altar. (laughs) Um, But that happened. Uh, The poor young guys had to carry them out and fear really came upon the church and upon the surrounding community. I mean, that would uh, probably bring fear in a lot of places. You know, someone dies somewhere notable, um, it ends up on the news and we all kind of lock our doors extra tight. But sincerely, it brought esteem. You know, people feared God and realized that God is real and God is powerful and He's very just and loving, but that His power is real. And and they saw that, you know, you you can't mess with God and get away with it. He doesn't always strike us down dead right immediately, and thankfully for that, um, but it will catch up with us. But it brought esteem from the community, that the community looked on and said, wow, these people, yeah, maybe we're not ready to believe yet. We still want to live our party lifestyle. Maybe when we're 80, we'll come to know the Lord. But they esteemed the church. Because the church at that time was legitimate. It was relevant in the truest sense of the form in that it knew who God was and God lived through them. They weren't trying to be cool and getting the right haircuts and putting on the right clothes and having the right fancy show to be relevant, but they were just living out their lives as God uh, empowered them to. And the community respected that because they saw something authentic. Um, But this time we're going to see something about jealousy, prison and a prison break, the gospel, and really, should we obey God or man? And I think that's probably pretty obvious, but we're going to look at that. Again, just to recap and Acts where we are for a little uh, context. Um, the church had been growing. As we remember, Peter kept giving the message. The Holy Spirit kept moving. And thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people were coming to know the Lord. I mean, that's a revival. That's a, you know, a revival. I don't even think it had happened before. So this was it. This was it. You know, if we talk about revival today, what we're looking to do is, well, what did God do? What did God do then? If we want a revival, and it's because maybe we don't look like the book of Acts anymore. Uh, But there was religious resistance. You know, the leaders had scolded them. The leaders had uh, come against them. Um, But there were healings, and there were also miracles, as we saw quickly at the end of last week, um, that people were getting healed, and people were getting saved. And maybe God doesn't always do that in our day and age, in our culture at least, because we have a greater revelation. We have the Word. They didn't have the Word of God then, and He wanted to get these people's attention. And you see that a lot in mission trips where people are healed in these really dark communities because God wants to show that He is powerful and uh, and people come to Him. You know, I think if all these miracles were happening here, we'd probably flock to the one who is doing the miracles and would miss out on the fact that God is doing something. But we also saw that the church was in unity, and that's so important. Because if the church is divided, like Jesus said, if any house is divided, 
it's going to fall. It can't stand. And if the church is unified in one thing under God, by the Spirit, by one Spirit, then God's, yes, finally, let's go do something. But before we uh, jump into verse 17, I just want to touch on verse 16 just to back up and get us a little more uh, context on what we're about to read today. But uh, Acts 5 verse 16 says, uh, Also a multitude gathered from the surrounding cities to Jerusalem, bringing sick people and those who were tormented by unclean spirits, and they were all healed. Again, word had been spreading to the uh, surrounding communities that something real was going on, something amazing. People were being healed and brought to Jesus. And it reminds me of the story of when Jesus was still walking the earth and those four guys had a friend who had been paralyzed and the guy couldn't get there. And there was a huge crowd outside the door. Yet these people knew that, hey, if we get this man to Jesus, our friend's going to be fine. And so they climbed up on the roof. They dug a hole. You know, imagine someone digging a hole in the roof. I'd be freaking out. My security deposit's not going to cover that for sure. But sincerely, um, they knew that Jesus would heal him, and he healed this man. Um, and Jesus said in John 14, 12, we read it last week, Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also, and greater works than these he will do because I go to my Father. And we see that these works of healings are going on in these disciples not because they went to a seminar, not because they were looking for glory, but because God's presence was in them. And they were willing to um, just live a life submitted to God. And God said, hey, you're here. You're the church. You're my body. I'm not here anymore, so I'm going to use you to do the same exact things that I was doing. Um, but I ask, you know, why isn't the Lord doing such great things here? And I don't mean here in our fellowship. I mean, maybe here in America. Maybe in Western culture, maybe in Europe, in a post-Christian culture. And I would say we're probably very post-Christian at this point. Um, uh, maybe we're not doing, uh, maybe because what we're doing is not what he's doing. What we're doing and where we're doing it is not where he's doing it. Maybe God wants to do something somewhere and we're unwilling to go there. Maybe God wants to do something in us and we're unwilling to let him go there. And so maybe there's this disconnect. And I'm not saying us or maybe anyone that maybe we know, but I think Christianity as a whole is kind of in that hole where it's a grave. And we boxed ourselves in and we said, oh, God wouldn't do that. God couldn't do that. That's weird. That's funky. And I don't mean anything crazy. I don't mean swinging from the chandeliers or snakes or anything that we don't see specifically in the Bible. But really, are we living in a grave of, of our own expectations for what our life should look like or our own expectations for what God should do and can do and would do um, when God's like, come on, come out, come out. But let's go on. Let's uh, read 17 through 21. But again, Lord, we just ask you to bless our teaching time together that, Lord, you would instruct us, you would teach us, Holy Spirit. We don't need anyone to teach us other than you. And, and yet, Lord, it's good for us to be instructed by fellow man, but we know that one day um, God we will need to teach anyone because we'll know everything and we'll be in your presence and, and that's going to trump it all. So God, would you be here? And uh, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll read 17 through 21. Uh, then the high priest rose up and all those who were with him, which is a sect of the Sadducees, and they were filled with indignation. Verse 18, and laid their hands on the apostles and put them in the common prison. But at night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go, stand in the temple, and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard that, they entered the temple early in the morning and taught. But the high priest and those with him came and called the council together with all the elders of the children of Israel and sent to the prison to have them brought. And we'll stop there. 
Again, we see the Sadducees. And if you remember, the Sadducees, they're sad. You see, there's a children's song about that that some friends of ours sing, and it's fantastic. But uh, again, uh, just a little more background on these guys. They were the upper social and economic uh, group of uh, Jewish society. These guys maintained the temple. Uh, apparently, uh, from what I've researched, they administered the state domestically, so they kind of handled political affairs. They represented the state internationally. They handled, again, external political affairs. They participated in the Sanhedrin and uh, met with the Pharisees. But these guys also collected the taxes, which was interesting. I learned this. Um, but they also equipped and led the army. They regulated relations with the Romans, but they also uh, mediated domestic grievances. So there really are a legal and political and financial authority um, for the Jewish people. They believe that there is no fate, uh, that God does not commit evil. I would agree with that. They agree that they say that man is free will. I would agree with that as well. I think the Bible clearly teaches those things. Um, but they, they said that the soul is not immortal, that there's no afterlife and that there's no rewards or penalties after death. So I go, well, you believe in God, you believe in free will, but you don't believe in the afterlife? So there's, there's this major disconnect in them and their idea of who God is and their relationship with God. Because if God is, exists and God's eternal and he made us, why would he just make us just to live 70 years and then go back to the dust? They, they obviously miss something. But basically their theology was YOLO. This life is it. You only live once. Uh, so enjoy it. And I think they also had their mind on their money and their money on their mind. And that's probably dating myself a little bit. But they were filled with jealousy, it says. <laughs> they were filled with jealousy. And you go, maybe, isn't God jealous? I remember there was a famous talk show host who said that she turned away from the Lord because she got across that scripture in church one day that said God is jealous. And she's like, jealousy is a bad thing. God is jealous. I won't believe in that. And she missed the point that God is jealous in a righteous way. That he's jealous for us, not of us. That he wants us to experience the best that he has for us. And that's why he gets jealous and says, don't do that. Don't go there because I've got something way better for you. But these guys weren't that way. These guys were jealous in the bad way. They were jealous of what God was doing. Uh, the root word is actually, it's the root word similar to the word we get for zeal in Greek. And I think that's interesting because... If you're ever zealous for something, maybe it's a relationship or a job or a new movie coming out or something where you're so excited and you're telling everybody and you're going to swerve through traffic to get there. I don't know, but um, they were zealous for this. They were willing to do whatever it took to get rid of these people and this thing that was going on that was causing them to be zealous. And we think of Saul, who later would become Paul, a very similar uh, spirit about him. But these guys were really upset that they were losing power. They were losing power and authority among the people. Um, and again, you go, okay, well, maybe that makes sense. You know, I can understand if the government of any society gets jealous of some fact that's rising up, trying to take authority from the government when the government's ruling in a right way. But these guys weren't ruling in a right way. I mean, think about what they were really jealous of. They were jealous of people being healed, of people repenting of their sin, and coming to faith in the promised Messiah. And these guys didn't believe in any of that. If there's no afterlife, Jesus didn't come back from the dead. If there's no rewards in, in, in the afterlife because there is no afterlife, well, this life is kind of it. And if people start living for the next life, start selling all their things and realize that this life isn't it, well, then you're not going to have any control over them. If someone comes to you and says, I'm going to take away all your wealth and all, and all you're living for is your wealth on earth, you're probably going to do what they say so they don't take away your wealth. But when you go, man, my riches are in heaven and you can take away all my greenbacks, but when I go to heaven, I'm going to have a dump truck of gold and you can't touch it, nanny nanny poo poo. 
then they have no control over you. But these guys really were upset, and this was messed up, really messed up. I mean, think about this. The church, the leader, I mean, not, they're not the church, but think about today. If the church leaders were so worried about having control over the people, were so worried about what the people were doing in a righteous way where they weren't maybe necessarily, um, I mean, the people weren't even really rebelling, but the people obviously were believing in a Messiah that these people didn't believe in. Can you picture that? Can you picture uh, an organization, a religious organization, that is that upset over people coming to faith? I mean, you think about thousands of years of church history, you know, whether it's Protestant or whether it's Catholic or whatever, where people were getting strung up for saying, hey, God is real. God is real. Even when you come out of like a certain like denomination, like Chuck Smith came out of the Foursquare denomination, I'm sure at the beginning it was kind of weird. And yet look at what the great things God has done through it. Look at the things that maybe people had judged him for. Um, I'm not saying that everyone comes out and does their own thing is doing a righteous thing. But when God begins to do a work, as we'll see, um, you really can't do anything about it because it's God. But we see that the Peter and the apostles were thrown into prison, a common prison. Again, I don't think they ever read their Miranda rights. They didn't have Miranda rights back then. But they were thrown into a common prison for what? Preaching the gospel and healing people in Jesus' name. That's pretty crazy. Somebody's broken and sick, and you heal them, and then the religious guy comes up and puts you in jail. I'd be like, well, uh, it doesn't even make sense. It doesn't even uh, compute. But it says that this common prison was not just a prison for the commoners, where it might be like the county jail or at the sheriff's office. They might have a few cells in the back, and they pick you up, and they put you there. Um, but it was in public view that perhaps this prison, um, you know, at least the word connotation has there that it was, hey, people knew when you were in this prison. People would see. Maybe, you know, you're walking up to the temple and there are some bars and you can see the guy's faces through there. I don't know. But it makes me think of medieval times in the stocks. Have you guys ever gone to like Ren Fair where they have the big wooden stocks? We've had our picture taken and you put your head through it and your hands through it and they put it down. It's in the town square because it was meant to be a shaming. It said, look, you've done something wrong. We're going to put you in the middle and we're going to shame you. I think in current times we have something very similar. It's the media. Before you've even been tried and brought to court, your whole, you know, your whole case is put on TV with false evidence, nothing follows any strict guidelines, and the jury of your peers, the country, makes a decision whether you're guilty or not before you even go to court. Um, I'm not always saying it's, it's wrong. I mean, sometimes you see it and go, yeah, it's obvious, then they go through six, 12 months, two years of court trials and eventually find, yeah, they were guilty and that was always the case, or they're not guilty. How is that even possible? It's obvious. Um, but really, again, these guys were guilty and told proven innocent for one reason. The leadership didn't like them. The religious rulers didn't like these guys and didn't like what they were doing. And yet you go, what were they doing wrong? What were they doing wrong? I think it's cool that at night, kind of like a special ops mission, an angel comes. And God only says one angel. He doesn't send a whole troop of angels. God's not scared of the prison guards. He doesn't think he needs backup plan. He sends one angel. Um, as we read in the scriptures, we know one angel can take out uh, legions of troops with no problem. But he goes there, and uh, well, let's look at verse 19 uh, real quick. It says, But at night an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And I think verse 19, it, it seems so nonchalant. But at night an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out. You know, a couple sentences like matter-of-factly an angel shows up and takes them out of prison it's not like 
angels appeared in heaven and it was glowing and the doors opened and walked through and it was just a couple quick sentences because it's simple. God sends an angel to do God's will, to free his people, and it's simple. In and out, in and out. He walks them out and he gives them instruction from the Lord. And I think part of that verse maybe we take away is that, man, the miraculous things to God are the everyday things to God. That what we think is so super miraculous, and oh my goodness, how could that ever happen? How could that ever be? And God goes, eh, it's simple. I just sent an angel and let him out. Man, if we could learn that, if we could take away from that, that God is, is going to get us out of things very simply. But instructions are to keep doing what they were doing. That when this angel appears to them and takes them out of the prison, he says something very simple. He says, verse 19, Go, stand in the temple, and speak to the people all the words of this life. He does not bring them a different message. He just says, hey, keep doing what you're doing. Keep serving God. Keep following God. And as a side note, I don't know if you guys have ever received a knock on your door, and you go to the door not knowing who it is, and you see two guys in, or two girls in uh, a white shirt and a tie and a little badge and very neat and very polite. Um, some of those came to my door the other day, and I had a very good conversation with them. I walked outside and I talked with them because they were young guys, and my heart kind of broke for them in a way. Um, but I certainly shut the door, and, and uh, we'll get more into it. But Galatians 1.8, you know, we got, we got to this. I said, well, how do you reconcile Galatians 1.8? I said, imagine you're Joseph Smith, and you're out walking in the woods, and an angel named Moroni shows up to you and hands you something, and yet you say you believe the Bible. Well, what do you do with Galatians 1.8? It says, but even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you, then what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. And they kept going, well, what's a new, what's a new, what's, What's a new gospel? What's another gospel? I'm like, the Book of Mormon. It's, it doesn't agree with what the Bible says. Everything in the Bible agrees with the Bible. And we got into this whole really good discussion. And uh, it went on for a while, and, um, but I think it was good. Uh, but we see here that this angel is simply doing God's work. He frees the disciples, he brings them out, and he tells them to keep serving God. He doesn't give them a new gospel. Uh, we know that this angel is from God because he's not leading them astray. He's not working against God. And God uses angels. I'm not saying we're ever, you know, you or I may ever never see an angel. I may never have an experience like this. But if you do, know that if he's encouraging you in the things of the Lord, then he's sent by the Lord. But if he's telling you something that maybe doesn't jive with the Bible, well, you need to run and take your medication. <laughs> but really, he says, give them the message of this life, of this life. And I think this life could be, well, really, it's the same message. Give them the same message we preach. Don't change your message at all. God created man. Man sinned. We killed Jesus who came to save us. God rose Jesus from the dead. We can be forgiven. We need to repent. Keep giving that message, that same message over and over. You don't need to change it up, Peter. You don't need to get creative. Just give the same message. Um, but also that this life, the words of this life, are also the most important words because they have an effect on this life and on the next. We say a lot of things, and yet we saw that verse recently that any idle word we say will be brought into account um, when we stand before God one day, but that these words have the most power over our destiny in a sense, where if, if we obey what the gospel says, not only does it make our life on earth better spiritually, but also our next life. We go to heaven because we believed in what God has done, and in a sense, it's not even that we've believed in our action saves us, but because we believe what God has done for us. We can be safe. So these are important words, important message. And the gospel should never be watered down. It should always be clear that, man, we sinned, but God loves us and is willing to forgive us 
if we would just turn from our sin and accept him for who he is, we're already forgiven. We don't have to do it to earn his forgiveness, but he's forgiven us already. It's a free ride. If we would just take it, we could be forgiven and go to heaven. But also that these words are of this life, that this life can be a full life, an abundant life, that we can have, as Joel Osteen might say, your best life now, but not in the same context as he might say it, where, yeah, this is my best life now. Are things maybe harder sometimes? I don't really know. Because before I knew the Lord, I wanted to die. Now I want to die because I get to go to heaven. You know, all right, Lord, but I'm willing to stay in the hard times because I know that God is with me. At least when I'm spending time with the Lord, I'm willing to stay in the hard times. But man, we can have that abundant life now. Or if we look at the disciples and we see their lives before Jesus, oh, they're fishing. Oh, yeah, they got to follow him around for a while, but they didn't really get it. And, you know, and Peter cut off that guy's ear and Jesus put it back on. But now we see they have this abundant life. People are being healed. People are being saved. They're being used by God. Their lives are completely different and completely full. They're being used to, basically, they're becoming the people that God had intended them to be. They're free to live out the life that God always wanted them to live out. You know, John 10.10 says, The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. But Jesus says, I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. That the point of Jesus' coming was not only to forgive us, but that we would have the opportunity to have real life. That we would have the opportunity to have abundant life. That, that God wants us to have life. It's not just to live a life of penance and, oh Lord, I'm sorry. Yes, we need to do that. But what's the result of that? What's the fruit of that? You know, that's the equation. What's the result? The result is we have abundant life. We have a free life. We have, we have things we can rejoice in, like we talked about before in communion, um, that we can rejoice in the sufferings of Christ because he's not dead. He's alive, and because of that, we're alive. And the message that Peter and these guys, the apostles, were preaching was about life. It was never meant to bring death to the people. The Bible says that the law brings death, but their message was about life. And when we think about teaching, messages, sermons, church, maybe even our own personal devotional time, do we think of it as being a message of life or death? When we come to sit down uh, for church or we turn on a, a Bible study or we get up in the morning or before we go to bed at night or on our lunch break or whatever it is, when we open the Bible or go to pray, are we expecting uh, to die a little bit? I mean, yeah, the Bible says that we do need to die daily, but really, are we expecting to come away with something that's going to bless us or something that's going to really spiritually hurt us? And I think that that depends on our perspective because God wants to give us life. And sometimes that means he does have to give us a harsh message. Sometimes that means he does have to cut us a little bit. But the end goal of that is that we'd have life. Like when you go to the doctor, he may tell you you need surgery, but it's because he wants you to be alive at the end of it. You know, he wants you to be alive. And also, do we expect to receive that life? Or are we just afraid of losing what we call life? You know, are we coming expecting freedom or imprisonment? Oh, I can't do this, man. Man, if I only didn't read that Bible verse today, I'd be free and be able to do what I wanted to do. And now I read that verse and God convicted me and I have to go do that now. You know, what's, what's really the shape and condition of our, of our spiritual life? But what's great is that these guys keep giving the same message like we talked about over and over and over and over again. The same message. A message of life. And verse 21 says, And when they heard that, they entered the temple early in the morning and taught. But the high priest and those with him came and called the council together with all the elders of the children of Israel and sent to the prison to have them brought. You know, they entered the temple early in the morning. 
you know, so it's at night, they went to prison, the angel freed them out, special ops style, gives them this decree to go do something. And what do they do? They go home and, and go to sleep and sleep in and say, we'll do it next week. You know, man, we just got arrested. <laughs> Let's, we'll come back next week. Let's let them cool off. No, they, they go home. Maybe they sleep for a little bit and they set their alarm, but they get up. They either stayed up or they purposed to get up early. They didn't wait to be obedient. You know, these guys got a message from the Lord and they had to go out and do it. And I don't know if you guys have ever experienced that. Sometimes the Lord will tell me something to do and I'll kind of put it off and I put it off and I won't have peace about it. And other times, it just the conviction will be so strong, I can't sleep, I need to stay up, and I need to do with it as soon as the day breaks. You know, I'm not going to call somebody and wake them up to talk about it, but I'll do it first thing in the morning. And I think that that's so important, that when God instructs us to do something, that we're obedient, and we're obedient um, right away. I mean, I, you know, if you're driving somewhere and God tells you to go evangelize someone, I don't necessarily mean that you necessarily need to slam on your brakes and get out and do something, but not to be crazy about it, but really that when God lays something on our heart, we need to be obedient. And they didn't wait. Genesis 22, 1 through 3 says, Now it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham and said to, said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. Then he said, Take now your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son. And he split the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place which God had told him. You know, Abraham obeyed right away. Maybe God came to him at the end of the night. I'm not really sure of the timing when God spoke to him. But man, he went to bed and he goes, all right, in the morning, I'm going to get up and I'm going to do this right away. So he gets up early and he saddles his donkey. I mean, imagine that. God gives you that word before you go to bed. But Abraham's able to go to bed in peace knowing, all right, God's asked me to do this. I want to be obedient to it. I don't really get it. It kind of makes me sad. Maybe I'm going to lose my son, but I'm going to go forward. I'm going to do it. So he gets up early and he doesn't wait. Because you know what? When we wait and we kind of bumble around with what God's asked us to do and we start juggling it and pushing it off, eventually, you know, we see our hearts get hard. Eventually, maybe we miss the opportunity. Eventually, maybe something wrong goes on because we were unwilling to wait. And I tell you, if God says to wait, wait. But if God's telling you to do something and be obedient to do it, I've been on both sides of that. And, and uh, believe you me, it's not fun to delay obedience. But God wants us to obey right away. Why? Because like we we're talking about, we end up grieving the Holy Spirit. You know, God goes, oh, I'm telling you, I'm telling you. We end up searing our conscience because if God tells us to stop, perhaps this was sin and we, God tells us to stop doing it, we go, all right, I'm going to do it one more time, one more time, one more time, one more time. And eventually we kind of forget God told us to, to, to cut it out. But it puts a block in our relationship with God and it prevents the message from getting out. You think about that. If God's asked us to be obedient about something, to go somewhere, to do something, to say something, um, and not to lay a trip on anyone, but really kind of sincerely, if God's asked us to go somewhere and do something and, and we're unwilling to do it, not that he won't bring someone else perhaps to do it, but man, we miss out. We miss out. And maybe, maybe the message isn't as clear on the other end as it should have been. You know, 1 Samuel 15, 22 says, So Samuel said, Has the Lord uh, a great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices, as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to, to heed better than the fat of rams. And Matthew 5, 24 talks about when you bring your gift to the altar, and you remember if someone's got something against you, go deal with it. You know, there's this, this link between obedience and doing it right away. Because 
think about it. if your parents ask you to take the trash out or you as a parent ask your child to, to clean up or do something, come on, come brush your teeth. And your child doesn't do it right away and they start playing around. All right, well, yeah, maybe you got to give them a little bit of grace for a minute. And then you're like, come on. And they don't. And then come on. And then they don't. Eventually, it's, it's not a good thing. It's not a good thing. You know, it's, it's not obedience anymore because it's been delayed. It's disobedience. Uh, verse 22, let's go on. But again, these disciples, they were obedient. They were obedient because they knew God and, uh, and they loved him. Verse 22, but when the officers came and did not find them in the prison, they returned and reported, saying, Indeed, we found the prison and securely, shut securely, excuse me, and the guards standing outside before the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the high priest, the captain of the temple, and the chief priest heard these things, they wondered what the outcome would be. So one came and told them, saying, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain went with the officers and brought them without violence, for they feared the people, lest they should be stoned. And when they had brought uh, them, they set them before the council, and the high priest asked them, saying, Did we not strictly command you not to teach in this name? And look, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine, and intend to bring this man's blood on us. But Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. Him God has exalted to his right hand to be prince and savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are his witnesses to these things. And so also is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. We see in verse 22 that the guards are in, dis- in disbelief. I don't know how you read it, but when I read it, when they say, Indeed, we found the prison shut securely. Like, yeah, we got there and it was shut securely. We don't get it. What happened? Shut securely, guards outside, the alarm is on. Everything's where it should be, except the apostles. And guess where they are? Guess where they are? And I think it's cool that the angel covered his tracks. The angel wasn't born in a barn. He closed the door behind him, you know. He, uh, he swept up the floor, maybe where he came in. You know, he didn't leave his angel fingerprints anywhere. But I think it's great that these guards, because obviously there were guards there. They said that everyone was where they should be, where they were supposed to be. The guards didn't notice. The guards had no clue that all this was going on. So maybe the angel walked right by the guards, opened the door. Maybe the angel took the guy's keys. I don't know. I don't know how practical the angel had to be. But he opened the door, took the apostles out, shut the door, walked them right past the guards. No problem. No problem. Um, and you guys ever heard of uh, Corey Ten Boom? Uh, I believe she was Dutch, but uh, she was uh, a young woman around the time of the Holocaust, and she was helping bring Jews out of uh, out of Germany and out of uh, the Nazi regime. And she ended up being caught and being sent to a death camp. Her and I believe her sister. Um, but at one point, uh, she tells a story of she was a believer, and uh, that they had uh, all of them take off all their clothes to be inspected to go before they were going to the camp. And she had a little Bible and she had it tied on a little string, I guess, around her neck. And she married praying, you know, she's there and obviously there's no place to hide this thing. They're going to check you. They're going to check you. They were checking other people. And she just prayed. She prayed, God, please, please. Um, And she gets through. The guard doesn't see the Bible. She gets right through. And man, God's able to do these things. God's able to do things. I mean, sometimes I think maybe when I'm driving on the highway and I pray, Lord, please don't let that cop come after me. God closes his eyes. I don't know. <laughs> but that's not, the same, that's not the same deal here. That's not the same importance. And man, it's sad if, if that's the, the only miracle I get in my life. But really, God's able to do these things. God's able to do these things. But we see that the formerly in control religious guys 
wondered what the outcome would be. They wondered what the outcome would be, verse 24. And it's interesting, another translation says um, that they wondered uh, how this thing would grow, that how this group of the apostles and the church would grow, that they're like, oh no, these guys are out. They're teaching again. What's going to happen here? What's going to happen here? And I think that they were trying to determine what the outcome was all about. They're trying to figure it out. They're trying to scheme it out. And man, is that what our world is about today? Trying to figure out what's going to happen next. Who's the next big star? What's the next big stock? Um, Lottery, for instance. You're going to figure out what those numbers are going to be. Straight in box. I don't know. Web analytics, where you analyze site traffic and figure out what people are going to do. Um, Fortune telling, politics, metadata. It's all about staying in power. It's all about staying in control. Whether it's something as benign as someone's user experience on a website to as something as spiritually deceiving as someone looking at the lines on your palm of your hand and saying, this is what your future is. Well, the lines on the palm of the hands that I want to read are the lines on the palms of Jesus. They're holes. But again, it's about staying in power and control. And and we're really not to try and figure out the future. We can read the Bible and understand and kind of say, well, this is kind of what's happening with the world. There's a wisdom to that. But we're not to sit around here going, all right, let me try and figure out what's going to happen tomorrow so I can control the outcome. Um, We're not to scheme that way. You know, and in the same sense, we cannot determine the will of God with the spreadsheet. I mean, there's so many times when, when God will lay something before you, lay some options before you, and you can make a spreadsheet. You can go over, well, this is a pro, this is a con, this is a pro, this is a con of either side, and lay them out. And at the end of it, you come, well, both of these are probably okay decisions. Both of these seem probably okay, but the point is, well, what's the will of God? God's laid this stuff out before me, left and right, but man... They both look good and they both look bad in some different lights and different perspectives. How am I supposed to make a decision? Well, you're not supposed to make a decision that way. You're supposed to say, God, not my will, but your will be done. You tell me what the right way to go is. Okay, yeah, it has less money. Or okay, yeah, it has more money. Or whatever the case may be, we need to go where God has to go. Because we can't figure out the mind of God that way. God's not up there. God is not lesser than us that we might put him in a spreadsheet and say, Oh, God, I've got you figured out. You're in that box, and I think so often people are that way when it comes to church planning, church building, or even life. They go, well, I've got the commandments, and I kind of live by them, and that must mean I'm in God's will, right? Well, kind of. I mean, technically, you're not out stealing, you're not committing adultery, but, man, are you really in the best will of God's life for you? Uh, Leviticus 19.26 says, You shall not eat anything with the blood, nor shall you practice divination or soothsaying. And it's interesting, this word divining here, when we think of sorcery and occult practices and stuff, um, or you you think of voodoo and things like that, but it's trying to figure out the will of God. What will happen? What's the will of God? We can't figure it out. He has to tell it to us. He has to tell it to us. Uh, But these guys, they realized they were out of control. The, The religious leaders, they go, man... We don't know what's going to happen. We knew what was going to happen. Our, our spreadsheet was filled out. We knew about how many people are coming to the temple, about what's going to happen, how many people aren't healed every week, how many people aren't saved every week, and things are going along fine. But then this, this changed everything. This changed everything. And at this point, when they realize that they're out of control, someone rushes in saying that they're preaching in the temple. Man, we're out of control. The guys are in the temple. The guys are in the temple. They're preaching. And remember that these guys, the uh, Sadducees, they ran the show around the temple. These were the ones who locked the doors at night. These were the ones who made sure the gold was polished. Um, But they were totally out of control. Their prison scheme hadn't worked. The people were arrested and it didn't work. 
and they were out doing exactly what they told the guys not to be doing. They had no control anymore. But what's cool is that they were out there teaching the people. And this is what the guy was saying they were doing and what they were upset out, that they're teaching the people. Man, that saying knowledge is power, I think in some ways it's true. Because when we know what the Word of God says, we know what the will of God is based on what the Word of God says, there's power in that. And then when we have that knowledge, so to speak, when we have that relationship with God, there's power because, again, like we talked about, the things of this world aren't going to stop us. The things of this world aren't going to slow us down. Oh, you don't like what the Bible says, but Jesus is alive. Okay, you can cut my head off. I can say that easily because no one's here threatening me, but I mean, I hope not. <laughs> but really, like when it comes down to it, there's no power. There's no power when we know the Word of God. But on the flip side of that, when anyone doesn't want you to know the truth, realize that they're trying to control you. If, if it's in a relationship and they're trying to cover up some misdeeds that they were doing, or it's in a business affair and they don't, re they don't uh, release all their books to you, or if it's in a religious setting or a scientific setting or anything, when they say, no, this is the way it is and don't explore elsewhere because we don't want you to know the truth. In the same sense, you, you, you might be able to misconstrue that and say the same thing about the church. Um, Feel free. You know, I, I say don't read other books because you're just going to get confused. But if you read the Bible and you're strong enough in the Bible and you want to research some other religion, you'll go, oh, yeah, this makes no sense at all. This makes no sense at all. You know, when I was talking with uh, the Mormon kids, um, I kept bringing it back to sense. This doesn't make any sense at all. Look at what the Bible says. It's in complete opposition. Look at what your own teaching says. And there's no, ev there's no archaeological evidence for it in reality. You know, Logically, look at it. Read the Bible for yourselves. If you say that your religion believes the Bible, read the Bible. I mean, why are you so scared of? <laughs> read the Bible and, and God will show you. God will show you. You know, you don't need to be afraid of coming out of something. I'm not afraid of ever reading something or ever finding something that's going to tell me that the Bible's not true. Because even if they did, 100 years from now they could prove wrong, but even if they did, Jesus is alive. There's truth in that. And uh, nothing has stopped that. But it says that they brought them back out. You know, they're out teaching. They come out. They're like, come on, come with us. Come on, come on. And they bring them back in without violence because these leaders feared the people. They knew they didn't have the political numbers to take these guys and do whatever they wanted. They realized that, hey, we need to tone down our actions here to keep the people in line uh, so that they can stay in office. But Proverbs 29, 25 says, The fear of man brings a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord shall be safe. You know, when we fear people, man, it, it traps us immediately, trapped. And that trap gets worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. But if we trust in the Lord, we're safe. We have nothing to worry about. And the Sadducees' problem was that they feared man and not God. And that that's, this is where their power came from in exercising control in the flesh over people. That when the people were under their control, they realized they had power and they felt like they were on top of the world. But when they were losing that control over the people, they realized, hey, we got to do something about this. And I think that his root was in their belief in the here and now. That the, their power came from the here and now. Their power came from the way people reacted to them. Really, the fear of man as opposed to God. And I think we could probably take away from that that we can't mix our faith. That we can't put our faith in God and put our faith in man. We can't put our faith in God and something else. It needs to be in him and him alone. You know, again, they were afraid of being stoned, that this angry mob would turn against them. Uh, mob rule. You know, when a mob rules, we need to watch out. When the mob tells the leadership what needs to be done for the law of the land 
or anything, you're in trouble. When a church is run by a mob, it's not going to be good. But they brought them back in for rhetorical questioning. Did we not strictly command you? Like, didn't you hear us the first time? Didn't I tell you not to touch that, son? Put that down. But what did they charge them with? They said, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood on us. Filled Jerusalem. Thousands were believing. Thousands more were hearing about it and respecting it. And what a great thing to be guilty of. They're brought in amongst religious people. And what's the charge? Not that they're heretics, but that they're filling uh, Jerusalem with the truth of Jesus. With the power of God. I mean, what a great thing to think that, man, if we ever brought before the court, they would charge us with something like that and not tax evasion, but um, spreading the gospel. And they say that you intend to bring this man's blood on us. Peter keeps, keeps saying that who you crucified, who you crucified, and they're going, you trying to blame his death on us, his crucifixion on us? It wasn't us. and totally was. You know, the cross really is an offense. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, The natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, but they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. And 2 Corinthians 2.14-17, uh, you can look it up for homework. Um, but again, people take a great offense uh, to the idea that they're sinners. You tell someone that they've done something wrong in modern society or that they're living a way that's wrong, they get way offended, way offended. But even more so, when you tell them that Jesus is righteous, and that's an even bigger picture why you're unrighteous, they, people will flip out. Not everyone, but some people will. And I think it's the same thing here, that these guys had moral relativism. They were good based on their judgment of others. That, oh, look at how holy we are. Remember, we're not, uh, when the blind man was healed by Jesus and he came before the Pharisees, I believe it was, and they're like, who are you to teach us the law? You were born in sin and we weren't. We're sons of Abraham. They had this feeling of self-righteousness because they were doing something that someone else wasn't. It was all based on the fear of man. But verse 29 says, um, uh, Peter, But Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than man. You know, that there was this boldness in Peter that wasn't there before. He said, We ought to obey God rather than man. And that's the real deal. I think maybe he remembered Matthew 10, 28, which I think we've read before. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. We see such a change in Peter, such a boldness when God has a control of his life that he's like, hey, even from before when he read, well, you decide whether it's right or wrong, whether we should obey you, to go on. We're going to obey God no matter what you say. And we cannot fear man. We, remember, it brings the snare, Proverbs 6, 5, deliver yourself like a gazelle from the hand of the hunter and like a bird from the hand of the fowler, that we need to deliver ourselves. We need to stop obeying man in the sense that when it comes against obeying God. We need to obey the rule of the la- rule of law, rule of the land, or bosses, things like that, as long as it doesn't interfere with our relationship with the Lord. You know, obeying God uh, over man may land us in prison, but we will be spiritually free. Obeying man over God may make us physically free, but we will be spiritually bound. You know, get out of things by whatever right means. Get out of those things that were bound to obeying man over God. That doesn't just mean quit your job and do ministry full-time, not necessarily, but be responsible, be responsible. And it says that their message here, and we're going to uh, get through this next section quickly, I hope, but that their message was that Jesus was exalted, Prince and Savior, for what purpose? To give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. You know, why on, why on earth would anyone fight that message? 
What's bad about that message? That God loves you and he wants to give you a freedom to repent and the freedom to be forgiven of your sins and have a right relationship with God? Why would anyone fight that? Why would anyone fight that freedom? I think because it, it frees people from earthly control. You know, our kingdom, God's kingdom, is not of this world. And on the flip side of that, again, the enemy and people will use your sin, past, present, or, or, or even just your desires to manipulate you. People will come into your life and hold something over your head that you've been forgiven for. Or hold something over you that maybe you're struggling with now. And we see it in politics and business all the time or in crime movies, you know. You got to help me out with this because remember how I could rat you out to the cops, you know, sort of thing. People will do that to try and control you, but the Lord will never use your past sin to control you. He'll always say, it's gone. It's forgiven. In a sense, he uses it in the flip way, really, to control you, to like, hey, you're forgiven of that. You're free to do whatever you want now. But he says, we are his witnesses. You know, they were employed by God. They actually saw Jesus. They actually saw Jesus. But you know, the ultimate witness is the Holy Spirit. John 16, 7 through 11. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. And when he has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment, of sin because they do not believe in me, Woo! and uh, of righteousness because they go to my Father and you see me no more, and of judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. And it says that they've gotten the message, and the Holy Spirit was given to who? The people who obeyed God. You know, disobedience, again, grieves the Holy Spirit. If we're in disobedience, God will move the way he wants to. Again, like we talked about recently, there needs to be a holiness. And the message is always the same. Repent and be saved. That, that when the Holy Spirit comes, he doesn't want to bring us to death. He wants to bring people to life. And we're going to uh, go through these next few verses pretty quickly, I hope. Verse 33, if we can't, we'll stop short. But verse 33, when they heard this, they were furious and they plotted to kill them. Then one of the council stood up, a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in respect by all the people, and commanded them to, be, uh, to put the apostles outside for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take heed to yourselves what you intend to do regarding these men. Uh, for some time ago, verse 36, uh, Theudius rose up, claiming to be somebody. A number of men, about 400, joined him. He was slain, and all who obeyed him were scattered and came to nothing. After this man, Judas of Galilee rose up in the days of the census and drew away many people after him. He also perished, and all who obeyed him were dispersed. And now I say to you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this is the plan, or this work is of men, it will come to nothing. But if it is of God, you cannot overthrow it, lest you even be found to fight against God. And they agreed with him, and when they had called for the apostles and beaten them, Oh boy. They commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. So they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. And daily in the temple and in every house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Here we see these guys are flipping out. What are we going to do? we got to kill these guys. we got to get rid of them. They won't obey us. They won't listen to us. People are being healed. <laughs> How dare they? But this guy, Gamaliel, this respected leader, stands up and he says, Men of Israel, hold up. Take heed to yourselves. Calm down for a minute. Just, let's just listen to wisdom and logic. We're all a bunch of smart guys here, right? We run the politics. We run the courts. We run the financial system. 
let's use our brains. Let's be logical about this for a minute. Um, I think it's cool that Gamaliel had learned from history. Had learned from history. He knew what had happened before, and he said, hey, logically, it's just going to happen again because history repeats itself. And that's a big problem this day and age is people don't know history. And we're doomed to repeat it, as the saying goes. Uh, but these guys were so hot under the collar that they were ready to obliterate the apostles at no matter the cost. They were so furious, they didn't care what the consequences were. They were like, let's just go out and kill them and get rid of them all. But he says to them, keep away from these men and let them alone. He says, just leave them alone, guys. And, you know, you don't think God was speaking through this guy in some weird way? That, you know, Proverbs talks about wisdom being something that God created and was there when God created the heavens and earth. That when someone who even is disagreeing with the Bible speaks something that's wise, well, it's still wisdom. I mean, yeah, true wisdom would be to come to God, but really, um, you know, God was using this guy in an out-of-the-box sort of way. You think of Balaam and the donkey. He says this, if it is of men, it will come to nothing. If people are doing this, it's going to come to nothing. You know, like Solomon talks about, I, I, you'd spend your whole life building up your kingdom, building up your palace, working so hard, saving up money, and then you die and someone else gets it. Your kingdom's over. Someone else has it now. It, it comes to nothing. It comes to nothing. You know, movements of man always die out. Cults always die out, usually because the cult leader gets everyone killed when the FBI shows up or the cult leader makes everyone drink Kool-Aid or whatever. Uh, false teachers, it always dies out. Fads, uh, you know, synthesizers were once really popular and then they died out. Clothing, you know, uh, I've been watching Reading Rainbow lately with my daughter and a couple of episodes from, I remember watching, I was four or five, and the clothes that they're wearing go, yep, no one's going to wear that anymore. But, <laughs> but really, certain things just go in and out of fashion because it's of men. It's not eternal. I think genes might be eternal, but, uh, but it's, it's of men. But he says, but if it's of God, there's nothing you can do about it. If God's doing something, how can you guys stop it? If this is God, let's, let's take for an instance, yeah, we're really smart, and yeah, we, we handle all these things, but maybe we're missing something here, and if this is of God, maybe we're missing something, and we need to let it be, because if it really is of God, we need to let it happen. I don't believe it is of God. I believe it's just of men, he's saying. But if it's of God, let's not mess around with it. You know, it's that unknown known that you know that, yeah, we know a lot, but there's still stuff out there that's unknown. And he was wise enough to realize that, that, again, like he didn't, he didn't believe in God. He knew that, yeah, maybe there's this possibility that it is God. And I think that that was an open door in his life for salvation. And, and who knows whether, you know, he obeyed God and listened to the conviction of the Spirit here. But, um, you know, there's an open door. And I think of the times that Jesus ministered to the religious leaders, it was in strong ways. He flipped the tables. He rebuked them. Um, he didn't answer them. He exposed their sin. You know, like these guys at the door, I was talked to them. And lovingly, I said, you guys are in a cult. I said, you guys are in a lot of trouble. You know, shared a bunch of verses with them, brought very logical arguments with them, was heated with them, but in a, in a loving, passionate way, I hope. And they stuck around and they thanked me for it. I mean, maybe that's just their byline that they have to do. Uh, but really, I was glad that you know, I was like, if you guys so strongly believe what you believe, and I so strongly what I believe, I need to tell you that you guys are in trouble. Um, but when we've disobeyed God long enough, the way he comes to us appears harsh, like with Pharaoh. He ended up having to kill Pharaoh's firstborn to get Pharaoh to listen, to free his people. Sometimes God has to come head on with us. It doesn't mean he doesn't love us, but man, when it gets to that point, when it's hard and we're kicking against the goads, as God said to Paul, we need to realize that... All right, God's doing this because he loves me and he's trying to, trying to break through. But it says as we're coming here to a close that they rejoice to be counted worthy of suffering shame for his name. Man, they walk out, they're beaten. 
his religious leaders are funny. They beat them, they send them out, they say, don't do this anymore. Um, but they walk out and they're rejoicing that they, were, they suffered shame, that they were all over the news, they were all over the media, and that they're, they were defamed and that uh, they were slandered and other things. But man, I don't think we like this. I mean, maybe you do, I don't, but the thought of suffering, the thought of shame and being ashamed with Jesus is people would mock me, people would make fun of me. That's probably a, a, one of the bigger fears in my life. One of the things I don't like the most is, is being shamed. You know, we, we tend to like the glory in our witness. It's much easier to go and, you know, have people say, oh, that was a great message. Or, oh, you know, like, I like your Facebook status and I'm not a, you know, an unbelie- I'm an unbeliever or whatever. But they understood something like Philippians 3.10 says, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, that there was a special sweet fellowship to being persecuted for Jesus. There's a special sweetness to your relationship with the Lord when, when someone comes against us because of our faith. When we've done nothing wrong and someone doesn't like us because of Jesus, you know, there's, there's an intimacy there that, that's not going to come any other way. It says that they met daily in the temple, and I think of guys like John Corson, who their church has stuff going on every day. Um, it says that they met in every house, that there were fellowship, Bible studies, prayer, everyone, everyone having everyone else over. And I remember um, when I first got saved and was going to church, it was around 30 people, and because there was that, you know, enough people, there was always something going on. You know, you could go somewhere almost every night of the week and, and spend time with the Lord. Um, and not that you have to do that, not that it needs to be this religious thing every day, show up at 6 a.m. for Mass. I'm not saying that, but I think it's awesome that, you know, that they were so rejoiced and so happy to be saved that they found any excuse to uh, meet together with the Lord. But again, uh, as we close here, the most important thing, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. They taught the Bible and they evangelized that Jesus is the Messiah. And that was the most important thing. If everything else disappeared, this was the most important thing that they kept teaching the Bible. Even as Jesus was saying in Revelation, you got all this other stuff going on, but you've kept my word. You've kept my word. You know, these guys, they didn't obey man. They obeyed God. And why? Because they were, and we are, his witnesses. And that's it. Amen? Amen. Father, we thank you for this time together. We thank you for your word, and we pray, God, that you would help us be your witnesses. No matter what comes against us, no matter what the world says, or our boss says, or even... Um, our own heart says, God, that we would trust you and, Lord, that you would be glorified and that, Lord, you would uh, bring the message of life into our lives and to others. And, God, that uh, sincerely the people around us would, would taste your life this week. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So God bless you guys. and.